Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Fast Talk, your source for the science of endurance performance. I'm Chris Case, sitting down today with Coach Ryan Kohler and Coach Trevor Connor. At least in the United States, um, maybe in Canada this is true too, but con- Thanksgiving in America marks the beginning of what I have dubbed Idorama season. Yes. It is a time when people just go hog wild for almost a month until Christmas is over with, until New Year's is over with. See a cookie? Stick it in your mouth. See a turkey leg? Stick it in your mouth. <laughs> See a pie? Eat it, right? Therefore, I think it's 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 a perfect time to have a nutrition-themed Q&A episode with you two guys, since you know a lot about nutrition. You like to eat. Uh, presumably, you like to eat, <laughs> right, Ryan? Ryan's kind of shrugging. Yeah, yeah sometimes. <laughs> so here we go. Let's let's. Uh, we gathered up some of our you know favorite nutrition-themed questions. We've been saving some of these for a while. Um, time to dig in. Fast Talk Laboratories offers deep dives into your favorite training topics, including interval training, data analysis, sports nutrition, and now, base season training for cyclists. Our new cycling base training pathway is now available, and it's perfectly timed to help you lay the foundation for an awesome 2022 season. In our new cycling base training pathway, Joe Friel, Dr. Steven Seiler, Ryan Kohler, Dr. Andy Pruitt, and I show why good base training isn't just about riding endless miles. We share how to plan and structure your base season, how to monitor your efforts, and how to track your fitness gains so you can start your next training phase with a strong aerobic engine. Complete our new cycling base training pathway and you will find the tactics and knowledge to build your own successful base training plan. And nearly half of this pathway is available at our free listener member level. Learn more at fasttalklabs.com slash pathways. Let's start off with one that's specific to Thanksgiving. It comes from a Brenda Castile in Essex, Connecticut, and she writes, Thanksgiving! I love it. I love the food. I love the drinks. I love the desserts. I love being around family, all of which means I'm exposed to calories and germs, a cyclist's worst nightmare. And as usual, it comes just a couple weeks before I want to be at my best for the finale of cross season. So how can I have my cake and eat it too? How does someone who takes the sport seriously, as I do, but who also has the perspective on, quote, normal life to know that I shouldn't boycott a special gathering that I love for a chance at a dinky medal at cross nationals this year? Am I just playing mind games with myself? Can I splurge for a day, do my best to limit my exposure to germs and other creepy crawlies, and then get straight back on the wagon the next day, no worse for wear? How do I keep the mind games from making me feel guilty and exposed right when I want to be buckling down for a chance at amateur glory? Ryan, I'll start with you here. Brenda talks about the, uh, this dinky metal and amateur glory and then also talks about uh, spending time with family. So we've got to set our priorities. Mm-hmm. I think that's, uh, that's my takeaway here is, I mean, part of it is we have done a great job at 
demonizing calories and from certain types of foods and certain, you know, we would, I'm sure a lot of those foods, if we listed out the things in, uh, on the Thanksgiving table, we'd see a lot of quote unquote bad foods. And I think that's what gets us to uh, think about this mindset. But as an amateur racer, you're going to see family, have fun, eat some good food. You should enjoy the food. Do you want to go and eat seven chicken legs and a whole pie? <laughs> Probably not. That if you might... ate chicken on Thanksgiving, <laughs> oh, you're turkey. doing Sorry. it wrong. <laughs> Not chicken, turkey. <laughs> okay, Whatever. thank you, thank the you. The other white meat. The other white Is meat. Is that it? No, that's pork. <laughs> My pork. first Canadian Thanksgiving living in the U.S., mm -hmm. I was living in Boston. Mm -hmm. Nobody would celebrate with me. I was feeling really sad and down. So I went to Boston, was it Boston Market? Oh, God, yeah. That and bought awful. their half chicken. Yeah. And sat there in Boston Market feeling incredibly homesick, incredibly sad for myself eating chicken on Thanksgiving. Mm, on your so Thanksgiving. There. On the real Thanksgiving. <laughs> on the real, sure, the real Thanksgiving. Okay, uh, off back on track, back. Ryan. Take so us my, back on track. So my, my point being that whether it's chicken or turkey that you're eating, it's it. everything comes with a consequence. So if you have to balance that out, if you want to do well at this uh, at this amateur race coming up, then maybe you just dial it back a little bit. But uh, I think splurging is fine. I mean, if you do it for a day, it's fine. If the race is the next day, it's probably not a good idea. If the race is two, three weeks later, why not? Enjoy it. And then I think you just have to do that when you're done. Don't think of this as a bad thing. Think of it as, hey, this just occurred. I'm going back to my plan now. That part of the question is most fascinating to me. And I know I haven't given you a chance to, to answer, Trevor, but maybe answer and answer this subsequent question that I have based on this this uh, question from Brenda, which is this mindset thing, this, uh, I don't want to call it infatuation, but you see it time and again, the, the guilt that endurance athletes bring upon themselves, I feel like for no good reason sometimes, and I don't know why that is. One meal is not going to ruin a season. One cookie is not going to ruin a race, you know? What is what? What would you say to that? So my answer to that is our our bodies. So this goes back to the whole homeostasis thing, and I don't. You know, this is kind of a fun question, so I don't want to get too deep into the science. But our bodies like to maintain homeostasis, and there is some truth to that with weight as well. So you're right. One meal, our body's going to want to go back to the weight it's it's used to. It's not going to suddenly put on three pounds that you can't take off. Uh, so you're, you're not going to get in too much trouble there. So the, the answer I wrote here is one day is really not going to have an impact. It's when you do the successive days, and that's where you see people get in trouble on the holidays. It's not just they wolf down on a Thanksgiving dinner. It's that they were binging the days before they have the Thanksgiving dinner, and the next day they're like, ah, oh, well, it's still Thanksgiving, and they keep eating, keep eating. <laughs> it's Idarama season. Right. It just continues on. That's where you start seeing your body going, okay, now I'm putting on weight. Now we're going into a different mode. And that is going to have an impact on you, and it's going to be hard to reverse that. Uh, so that's what you have to be careful about. I always tell my athletes, you have one day, enjoy it, don't worry about it. You might wake up the next day and not like what you see on the scale, but three days later, you're going to be right back to you where you were. And I mean, I just had that experience myself. I was just up in Canada for Canadian Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. 
Sorry, we recorded this in October, in case anybody's confused. So I was just up there, and uh, actually, I was pretty good during Thanksgiving, but the following weekend, some college buddies came to visit me. And I didn't want to make them feel uncomfortable because I'm always trying to eat well, and they did not want to eat well, necessarily. So we went out to lunch the first day on the Saturday, and I just said to them, this weekend, I am not eating well, so don't worry. And then ordered a lunch that even I was looking at going, this is disgusting. I hope somebody sends in this question because at one point we have to have a debate whether poutine is the tastiest thing in the world or a concoction from hell. <laughs> kind of going with the latter. I cannot answer that question because I've never had it. Yeah, I had a very big bowl of poutine yeah, that weekend. Okay. I know it sounds gross to me. Yep. And look, that weekend, as soon as that happened and I took the stoppers off of myself, I probably took the stoppers off a little too much. And by the next day, I was like, chips, candy, give it all to me. And I could not stop eating. And then I, my friends left and my dad's like, what do you want to have for dinner? And I'm like, I've been binging all weekend. Let's order a pizza. Mm-hmm. He's like, is it a large good enough? And I'm like, yeah, are you getting any? And I ate an entire <laughs> large pizza by myself. And yeah, I mean, this was the horrifying thing. Uh, I got to the next day. I flew home. I stepped on my scale. I was eight pounds heavier. It was all water. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And and I ended up ultimately putting on like a pound and a half, which will come off in the next week. So kind of where I'm going with that story is even something that disgusting. It was just two days. It didn't, you know, probably gave me a heart condition. Yeah. Uh, but besides that, um, no, I, I'm right back to my normal weight. Uh, you can handle a day or two without too much impact. And, and I think it's important for Dern's athletes uh, to recognize that. When I hear people go, no, I, you know, I, I have those days and I, I don't, you know, I seem to keep putting on weight. You're probably having a lot of those days. Mm-hmm. One day here or there and generally eating well, you're going to be fine. Well, let's, uh, let's move on to another question. This one comes from Sid Merriman. He's in Dover, Delaware, and he writes... Simple question, before or after? Thanksgiving is a time for feasting and turkey trots, but do I feast first and then trot, or trot, then feast? He goes on to write, My wife and I debate the topic of timing every year. I want to get my turkey trot in first, then binge like there's no tomorrow, which means she's pushing back the Thanksgiving meal until late afternoon to accommodate my schedule. She wants me to eat first so that I get to the turkey trot later in the day to work off that ginormous plate of pecan pie, which means I'm pushing her to have the Thanksgiving meal at or before noon so I have time to digest 8,000 calories before running my brains out. Who's right, me or my wife? Trevor, I know you like to wade into domestic disputes all the time and act as mediator, so... Who's right here? So this one, I actually spent a fair amount of time researching because I was really interested. Is there any science behind this of the impact of uh, eating before or after exercise? Uh, you know, I did the whole thought experiment in my head, and I can think of a whole lot of reasons to eat before, a whole lot of reasons to eat after. Uh, but I, I will start with this three studies that I found that will not clarify this at all. Okay, great. Because the first one, effects of exercise, and I couldn't find any in, in, in athletes. So this was more looking at, 
weight management in people who are overweight um, or diabetic. And so obviously diabetes is, somebody who has diabetes, it's a different scenario, different case. But anyway, uh, so you, you have to hear all this with a grain of salt. But here's the first one. Does exercising before or after a meal affect energy balance in adolescents with obesity? And their conclusion was these primary results suggest exercising immediately before or after a meal produces few differences. So that was the first study. The second study, present finding, this is called effects of exercise before or after meal ingestion on fat balance and postprandial metabolism in overweight men. And they said the present findings suggest that there may be an advantage for body fat regulation and lipid metabolism exercising before. And then finally, exercising tactically for taming post-meal glucose surges. So this third one writes, the results show that a light aerobic exercise for 60 minutes or moderate activity for 20 to 30 minutes, starting 30 minutes after meal, can efficiently blunt the glucose surge. So you got one study that says no difference, one study that says benefits after, and another study that says benefits before. So I hope we've answered that question. <laughs> But who's right, the man or the woman? Ryan? I've been researching this for over 10 years. Ah. The wife is always right. There's... Ryan is married. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Very good answer, Ryan. I like the way you do your research. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm <laughs> very not, succinct. I'm not very... arguing here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to go this. with the man is right. I'm divorced. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I'm... I'm I'm happy that you took it in the serious direction, Trevor, uh, to shed no light on it. But it's interesting that there has been plenty of research done on this. I guess, you know, so many variables at play here, the size of the meal, the type of the person, trained, untrained. Are we talking weight loss? Are we talking performance? Are we talking, you know, there's there's so much that could be asked. It's hard to hard to answer that question. But thank you for being a bit nerdy on it. Well, sure. Look, I actually wrote up some bullets of, of the pros and cons of each, if you want to hear those. I do. And this is just kind of a thought experiment. Like I said, I, I looked through the research and went, well, that doesn't help at all because it says everything. Mm -hmm. And again, this wasn't athletes, so you have to take it with a grain of salt. But you know, the argument I would have for running after the meal, so eat first, then run. Assuming you weren't going to puke up a giant turkey leg. Well, yeah, that is one of the questions of... How long do you have to wait? Right. Uh, can you do that? Mm -hmm. But so we'll get to that in the, in the other arguments. But the arguments for running after, if you ran, so issues with running before is you got to fuel, so you're going to eat more through the course of the day uh, because you had to fuel for the event. Then you do the event, then have your giant dinner. Mm -hmm. um, running can make you hungrier, so that means that you might eat more at that big meal. Mm -hmm. the, the benefits of running after is it's going to help you regulate insulin and help your body to absorb a, that huge glucose hit that you probably hit your body your, yourself with. The arguments for running before is we all know that turkey dinner is really sedating. You don't want to do anything after, so... Uh, you might not be able to run after that big meal. And exactly as you said, can you really eat two, 3,000 calories and then go run an event? I'm sure a lot of people would have GI issues with that. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
And Chris oh, is man. laughing because I mean, he knows I'm oh, saying oh, the nice uh, version yeah, of this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, how many porta potties are on that turkey trot course? I could tell you my strategy because I I do this is, you know, we have our turkey dinner up in Canada at normal dinner time. So I actually like to mostly fast that day because I do have my fasting days. I'll go out for a run. That actually shrinks my stomach a bit, so I'm less hungry for dinner and I don't feast as much. Um, and then I don't feel too guilty about the dinner I'm, I'm about to eat. Uh, so I've kind of enjoyed that, and that's what I did this year. Uh, but I think if I was going to make a suggestion, uh, I might, if you can have long enough a time in between, would consider you know, if you have four or five hours eating first. Hey, I'm Ryan Kohler, head coach and physiologist at Fast Talk Laboratories. And I'm Trevor Connor, CEO of Fast Talk Labs. Between the two of us, Ryan and I have over 40 years of coaching and clinical experience. From juniors to masters, national level athletes to club riders. Our team at Fast Talk Laboratories is pleased to offer new solutions and services. Now you can get the same guidance and testing available to athletes at national performance centers. No matter where you live or train, our virtual performance center can be your support network to get faster, to get answers, and to get more enjoyment from your sport. Schedule a free consult. We'll discuss your background and recommend a path forward. Book a coaching help session. We'll help you push your thinking and find new opportunities. We can troubleshoot challenges and find solutions. Even if you're working with a coach, we can help support you and your coach by bringing a neutral, science-based perspective to your training. Schedule inside testing you can do from anywhere in the world. We can reveal incredible insights into your personal physiology and strengths as an athlete, plus next steps to improve your performance. Prove your nutrition with a consultation tailored to your needs, or create a personal race day nutrition plan. We can even help you with workouts and skills. We offer in-person and virtual sessions to guide key workouts or improve technique. Fast Talk Laboratories is here for you, wherever you are. See how we can help at fasttalklabs.com slash solutions. All right. Well, let's, let's move on. That was a great question. Um, great answers. Let's move on to another one. This one comes from Casey Hickok. He's in Bend, Oregon, and he writes, When I was first getting into cycling in the late 1990s, I remember watching the Tour de France on TV when Lance Armstrong and Jan Ulrich were battling. When it came to Jan, a topic of conversation that always seemed to pop up was about his weight and how much he would put on in the offseason and how hard it was for him to lose it the following season. Well, I know how the man must have felt. Leaving everything else from that era aside, can you help me avoid the seemingly inevitable weight gain of winter? I slow down. The food and beer seem to get richer and more plentiful, and the weight gain speeds up. Every year it gets harder to shed the weight come spring. Surely you've heard this before or even dealt with it yourself. I imagine discipline is key here, but besides that, what can I do to avoid this up-and-down cycle year after year? Let me put it this way to you, Ryan. He says, I imagine discipline is key here. Is discipline the only thing here? No, there's a new method that I just okay. learned about that'll work. It's called discipline. Oh, <laughs> so ah, discipline. Yes, yes. You slow down, so you're doing less training, less volume, 
the food and beer go up, so we're throwing that uh, equation off. It's 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 clear as daylight here. So, I mean, if you don't have the discipline, maybe try to keep some of that volume up. Mm-hmm. You could try to offset that. I mean, there's ways you can go about this. It's uh, the fact that um, that he recognized it and he knows what happens. At least he has he 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 can make some adjustments there. But yeah, that's. Uh, there's no easy way around it. It's it's discipline. Either do it or go through this process every year. <laughs> well, let me ask you this for, for either of you, but for both of you. Is there good reason, are there benefits to actually putting on some weight in the off-season? You've been running lean all year. Maybe you're getting depleted. Maybe an addition of some weight, not a lot, but some is actually a good thing in the off season, quote unquote, off season, winter season for most people, when if they are outside, maybe that extra weight is actually beneficial, helps with immune response, it helps with uh, some of these uh, underlying things that keep you healthier. Is that, do I have that wrong? My answer is that depends. It depends on where you're starting from. Sure. So if we are talking about somebody who's cyclist skinny, Mm -hmm. which let's face the facts, that's can start to verge into the not quite healthy, like being too skinny. Mm -hmm. Uh, For a lot of us, our, our, our racing weight is pretty darn low. Body fat percentage is pretty low, and it's actually a stressor on the body to maintain that weight. We're talking sub 10% body right. weight, right? 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 8%, 
So you, when you're training really hard, you will add several pounds of, of water weight. When you get to that off season, you stop training hard, your body actually doesn't like to maintain that adaptation. So you'll start losing that water. This is also why a lot of really hard training cyclists talk about in the off season, if they, they bend down and then stand up too quickly, they can almost pass out. Uh, because their blood volume has gone down so much that their blood pressure hasn't hasn't adapted. And uh, they actually can't get enough blood up to the brain if they stand up too quickly. So you might be looking at the scale and go, well, my weight isn't changing. You're right, your weight isn't changing, but your body composition is because you're actually putting on fat weight, but you're dropping water weight. And then it's later on when you start training again, your body starts re-adding the water weight that you suddenly go, wait a minute, I'm four pounds heavier. What happened? So you do have to be careful in that transition period. It's probably one of the toughest periods of time if you're trying to maintain your weight. Mm -hmm. Very good. All right. Let's move on to a question from a Brad With. He writes, I recently read an article by Trevor where he discusses health issues, inflammation, and sickness during his cycling training. I've raced bikes for about 18 years in Colorado, I've been plagued with frequent colds, he says 8 to 10 a year, digestive issues, and celiac disease. I've also had a bout of viral postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, and I also had a rare and serious pneumonia that almost took my life in 2012. I always felt that there was possibly a major factor contributing to these problems. I'm seriously considering whether it's the food I'm eating. I'm trying to find some evidence that a drastic change in diet could contribute to improving my health. Paleo is one of the avenues I would like to try. I would like to find other anecdotal evidence that paleo has improved the health of others. Trevor, I know you have this bias inherent in you as owner, CEO of the paleo diet, but also having studied this extensively from graduate school to today, what would your answer to Brad uh, be? Well, ironically, you've already heard me of this, talk about this on the show. But that was what convinced me of the diet is I ended my cycling career, if you want to call it that, um, because I was, same thing, I was getting sick eight to ten times per year. And it was just impossible to train. And when I transitioned to uh, eating a paleo diet, I just stopped getting sick. And that was one of the things that, that really convinced me. But let's take the paleo diet out of this and just talk in general about anti-inflammatory diets. And, and I, the last thing I'll say about the paleo diet is I do think it's an anti-inflammatory diet. Mm -hmm. uh, certainly when somebody tells me they're having these sorts of issues of getting sick that frequently, I don't think this is viral, always viral infections would be my guess. And I've led, read a fair amount of research on cyclists and the, the frequency with which they get URI, so upper respiratory infections, showing that viral infections couldn't always be detected. And, and some of the belief here is this is just an, an aberrant inflammatory response. It feels like being sick, and it's not a response to a virus. Uh, so when he's getting sick that frequently, when he's having the, these other conditions, this, to me, is certainly, without doing the research on without doing a blood profile, certainly so far the profile is somebody who has um, inflammatory issues mm -hmm. and would really benefit from reducing that inflammation. 
And diet is, in my opinion, one of the best ways to do that. So making a big, he doesn't want to make the big change, but I think he has to. Whether it's a paleo or another diet that, that seems to have anti-inflammatory properties, or, be, or shouldn't call it anti-inflammatory, but is not an inflammatory diet, uh, is really the way he should go. And when I wrote back to him, because he did send this email to me and I sent a response, uh, basically what I said is you need to unfortunately make the big change and you got to be religious for a bit because if you only go halfway you might still be containing enough of the foods that are setting you off that you're not gonna be able to make a good judgment of that diet so you've got to spend six months being pretty darn religious see if that improves things for you and if it does that's when you can start re-adding foods that you like and you know, kind of re-add them one at a time and see how your body responds. So that's called an elimination diet. It's not pleasant. Well, frankly, you know, that's kind of when I'm, I'm doing well, that's all I eat all the time and I actually feel great. So I should say it's unpleasant. Thing. It's a right. subjective thing, yeah. But it might be a little tough to do. But if you're having th that many issues and, yeah, you're doing something a little tough with your diet, but you're not getting sick all the time, not having the issues that you have, it's, it seems to me like it's a pretty good trade-off. And then once, if that works and really helps him, then finding those things that he can still eat that he enjoys that don't set him off is the way to go. Yeah. And you think six months is the time frame that you should try this? That's what we always recommend. I mean, Ryan would love to hear what you have to say about this, but I've seen too many people that do it for three weeks and go, the diet didn't help me. Yeah, 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 sure. Ryan, yeah, I feel, yeah, no, I, I fully agree in the... Um, with that timeline, I mean, it's just reading this. I mean, think about uh, you know what are those things that are going to be that are going to promote the good health and and anti-inflammatory properties as a piece of that. And and it's it's that nutrient density. I think we've talked about that quite a bit. And um, yeah, we know what kind of foods you get those from. It's it's those colorful foods. And you know, he he definitely has some of these issues going on. I mean, with celiac. As an example, it's that's a, that's a lifelong adherence to to no gluten. So, in a way, it, it helps to create some of that elimination diet approach that we've talked about. But it, you really need to give yourself that time to adapt to it. And uh, you know, I mean, we've been we've gone through a, a gluten free approach because I have one kid with celiac, so we've had to do that as a family, and that was quite the change. And it wasn't something that we figured out in a matter of weeks of how to adapt to that approach but it yeah it takes a lot longer but then you do notice over time you take things out and when you need fuel then you figure out what those are and in my experience it's it's typically going toward more nutrient dense choices you know and i think something you've said many times before too trevor is don't expect you know, you're giving yourself six months because there's probably going to be a lot of ups and downs before your body stabilizes. You might actually go on to what is considered a better diet, but you might feel worse for a period of time. Your body doesn't like change. It's very rare that you make a big change and you don't feel a little worse initially. Like I said, one of my, one of my favorite episodes of The Simpsons is when uh, Lisa Simpson finally gets the whole family to eat vegetables and they're all sick that night because <laughs> none of them have eaten vegetables in years. Right, right. So going with what Ryan is saying, so again, uh, we, we created that chart of the, the nutrient density of foods 
and we actually got a really good response to this. I still have to write back to about saying uh, one of our readers took a or listeners took a close look at it and said that he felt that fish was inappropriately high because fish is so high in B12 that kind of biased it. And to tell him the truth, I'll answer this right now, I will write a response. I actually do agree with him, and Dr. Cordain and I had that debate. So on the nutrient density chart, it goes fish, then vegetables, and fruit. I would actually go vegetables, fruits, and then, sorry, vegetables, fish, and then fruit. So I'd, I'd flip it. But you look at any definition of an anti-inflammatory diet, and vegetables, fruits, fish, uh, that's basically the basis of any any anti-inflammatory diet. Uh, what is inflammatory? That's your processed foods. That's your grains. I mean, my whole thesis was on the inflammatory proce uh, properties of grains. So get away from processed foods and then eat lots of fruits, vegetables, and, and fish. He also has some autoimmune issues. And when you get into elimination diets for autoimmune disease, Again, you can look this up. We actually have an article on this. There are some other foods that you have to eliminate that people are kind of surprised by that can also set off uh, autoimmune conditions. Eggs, mm -hmm. and more the egg white than the, the, the yolk. That always shocks people. Because uh, I might get this mixed up, but as I remember, the egg whites are very high in thalmontin-like proteins, which are not good for a lot of people with autoimmune diseases. Also good to eliminate, obviously, peanuts, uh, Good to eliminate tomatoes. Mm -hmm. tomatoes nightshades. Are, yeah, so tomatoes are part of the nightshade family, so get, frankly, getting rid of all nightshades. But people are always surprised when they say eliminate tomatoes from your diet. Mm -hmm. Well, it sounds like Brad, um, he says he's, he's looking to try it. He sounds like he needed a little bit more convincing, and hopefully he got, got what he was looking for, uh, and we'll try this, and it will help. Let's take one final question. This one comes from a Sebastian Fleischman up in Brunswick, Maine. He writes, Last year I moved from Georgia to Maine in the middle of winter. I didn't ride all that much, but when I did, I always had trouble finding foods that were easy to eat when it was 50 degrees colder than what I was used to previously. There's the practical side of the foods, how to unwrap something with giant gloves on and what won't freeze in my pockets, but I have to think that there are other caloric considerations given that my body is working to ride as well as stay warm simultaneously. What suggestions do you have for winter ride food that take into account all these things? Ryan, I'll start with you. What would you say to Sebastian here? So one question or consideration would be how long he's riding. If this is, say, a ride and he's going out for an hour or two, you can probably get away with focusing on warmth and fueling yourself a little bit more heavily beforehand mm -hmm. and not have to worry too much about the practical piece where you just can get through that. If this is much longer, then yeah, now we have to consider um, the, the accessibility and the types of foods. Uh, when I was on the East Coast as a, a river guide years and years ago, we would go out in March and April on the river, and it was in the 30s and extremely cold. So we would always have a fairly high-protein breakfast before going out. And uh, what comes with that is a higher thermic effect. It takes the body more energy. It creates more heat to, as you digest higher protein. So we kind of use that as one way to help ourselves stay a little bit warm as we first got on the water. So I would look at that as an option. 
for uh, some of these rides where if it's, yeah, like an hour or two and he doesn't really need to eat too much during, maybe just increase the amount of calories coming in beforehand, get a little bit more protein. Uh, likely he's not doing high intensity interval workouts out there, thinking maybe if it's snowy or cold, you're moving faster, you probably just want to keep it steadier. So that could work. Um, you know, thinking about on the practical side here, bottles, we have, we can, we have good access to the uh, insulated bottles now. We can put some warmer fluids in there, help keep things a little bit warm. Um, in terms of fueling, uh, yeah, blocks, bars, those things generally don't do well. And it's, you know, the consideration of, well, can I store them inside my jersey and keep them close to the body? Maybe, as long as you can still access them that way. Uh, I, I'm a fan of gels, as I know. <laughs> I do eat gels, and I actually like to bring those in uh, in the winter because they, you know, they're still edible. They might be a little bit chewy, not as, uh, you know, a little bit of a more of a, yeah, a little more solid almost, but still um, edible. And they're fairly easy to open when you have gloves on. You can use your teeth to open them and just get food in that way. And then I also love uh, like sandwiches. I mean, you know, a nut butter with some bread stays pretty well and you can eat that cold or warm. So I think there's a lot of options. And, and for something like this, I would I would just start trying things out, you know, working with athletes that here in Colorado that were doing um, some of the ski mountaineering races over the years. I mean, that's that's a, a constant uh, battle for them because they go uphill and they get warm and they have to figure out, well, now when I'm skiing down, there's, there's now more, more of a breeze and that wind chill, uh, goes down, then they, their, their fluids freeze or their, their gels or, or not gels, but blocks get frozen on the way down. So, um, it's really a trial and error and see like, but consider how long you'll be out. What can you do before maybe preload? So you do less, but if you are out there for multiple hours and you need stuff, then, uh, yeah, see if you can pack it as close to the body as possible. Use some insulated bottles and uh, find foods that that you can still chew. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we did a episode. Um, I don't know, maybe a year ago or close to it, with uh, a, a cyclist who has competed at the Iditarod Bike Invitational several times. He's almost a specialist in in riding in very cold environments and. Um, and, and also having to deal with sending packages to different postal, uh, facilities in the middle of nowhere where the box is going to sit inside so it can't melt and it then going to be outside in frigid temperatures and it can't freeze. And he said he eats a lot of nuts and he eats a lot of chocolate because those two things, if you think about them, don't really change no matter how cold it gets, the chocolate will get harder, but it doesn't. It doesn't ever really turn into a teeth-breaking exercise. At least you hope. Um, his final point was: you really don't want to be uh, having to thaw things in your armpit for an hour before you eat it. Which you know, who would? Trevor, I'll turn it over to you. What other tips do you have here for Sebastian? So I, I read this and. You know, I've, I've spent how many winters training up in Canada where I ride outside almost every day. So I'm like, I, I am the guy to answer. Yeah. This. So I was trying to think of what I do, but um, here's my issue. So I got to go on a tangent here. Okay. You know how the best thing in the world is cookies fresh out of the oven? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can't stand that. <laughs> Take a cookie fresh out of the oven, put it in the freezer for two days. That's what you like. Th then I can't get enough of it. So. <laughs> 
I'm not generally a fan of cliff bars, but let me tell you, I go out on a day when it's like zero degrees Fahrenheit, which is like negative 20 Celsius. I will buy a cliff bar just to put it in my pocket. And when it's at the point where biting into it, it's 50-50 whether my tooth or the cliff bar is going to break first. Mm-hmm. Can't get enough. Wow. That's so, interesting. Don't follow any of my advice is basically what I'm saying. Ah, yeah. Okay. But some potential. So I actually want to first address one of his uh, lines here. He said, but I've got to think there are other caloric considerations given that my body is working to ride and stay warm simultaneously. Ryan, really interesting to hear what you have to say, but I actually don't agree with that. Mm. If you are dressed appropriately, you, whatever you're training, you are generating heat. That's not an issue. I think it's a much bigger strain on your body in hot weather to keep you cool than it is on your body on a cold day, as long as you are dressed appropriately to keep yourself warm. So I don't see it being that big an issue. As a matter of fact, that, that I'm actually going to be serious. My own winter training, I find I don't need to eat and drink as much in the winter. I tend to dress quite well, keep myself warm. Uh, you don't need to be, your body's not going to be sweating a lot of fluid if you're dressed properly uh, to cool you down. So you don't have a ton of fluid loss. So I find I don't need to drink as much. You don't uh, drink to begin with, so you're kind of a bad example in that way, too. Yeah, well, I have done like <laughs> six-hour rides in the winter on half a water bottle. I Yes, I understand. So I, I tend to, in that direction, too. You do bad, that as very well, bad. so you I'm can't judge bad. me. I know. But do you eat the frozen cliff bar? Uh, I certainly have had them, but it's not what I crave, no. Well, next time, add it to me, because uh, I will enjoy it. Because I live early. in a bakery, and so fresh-baked cookies are my, are you know readily available at all times, essentially. So my suggestions are, though, the things that I have found work, I agree with Ryan, the thermos. Mm-hmm. Try to keep Insulated, that water warmer. Yeah. If you're drinking really cold water, your body does have to work to heat that up. What about having just vodka in your bottle? Well, good luck staying on the road, <laughs> but otherwise you're doing fine. Yeah, in the winter, I mean, it's like you said, the with the intensity being so low, you can almost eat whatever you want because, I mean, you could throw, probably throw a little... Uh, with those little portable microwavable um, soup yes, things, you know, right, right. those are uh, those are great. Mm-hmm. Probably heat one of those up and have it, or stop midway if you know where to find one. I mean, there's a lot of ways to get warm stuff in, but um, yeah, I think the dress, just how to, <clears throat> how to dress for it, I think is so huge. And yeah, I agree with you, Trevor, on that. That um, yeah, this could be like a year or two to figure out how to dress appropriately for that stuff. So if anything, in the winter, I have trouble sometimes just being overdressed and actually having to shed layers because of how drastic the temperatures can change from when the sun's behind the clouds to when it's out. And finding that layering is not easy. So I think the worst winter choice I ever saw is I was out for a base metal ride with a a friend and we stopped at a gas station and he bought one of those gas station microwavable burritos Mm -hmm. that he microwaved in the gas station and ate on the ride. Yeah. I'm not even making a statement of how good or bad this is as ride food. He just actually ate a gas station burrito. <laughs> hey, it's one level up from the the hot dog things that are sitting there on those rolling gizmos for 6, 12 hours before you walk into the store, right? So it, he didn't go to the bottom of the barrel. <laughs> That's Okay, so you want to hear the worst gas station food story ever? 
uh, I think we're going to. Which has absolutely nothing to do with cycling, but you just made me realize I have to share this. Okay. So, you know, at the gas station, they have those horrible, like in the paper packages, pies. Like the uh, cherry sure, pie, sure. apple yeah, pie. Those yeah, are, yeah. They're all like 500 calories each. Uh-huh. So when I was in school, we had this challenge called 40 Rise, which was from sundown to sunrise. You had to do 40 shots of rye with a, with a friend. So 20 shots each. Okay. Ideally. But between the two of you, you had to do 40 shots of rye. Since I was not a big drinker, I decided not to do the 40 rise. But one of my friends and I decided instead we would do 40 pies. <laughs> God. <laughs> tried to eat 40 of these. Five, at, at 500 uh, calories a clip? We failed at 24. <laughs> oh, my God. So you each had 12, or was it imbalanced? Did you have 16 and he only had... It was 10? a little imbalanced, and he was the one to throw up. <laughs> but we tried. Yeah, We tried hard. Yeah, That has nothing to do with cycling. No, um, but that is a perfect way to end a nutrition-themed podcast about eating disgusting pies and puking. So I think we'll call it there. That was another episode of Fast Talk. Subscribe to Fast Talk wherever you prefer to find your favorite podcasts. Be sure to leave us a rating and a review. The thoughts and opinions expressed on Fast Talk are those of the individual. As always, we love your feedback. Join the conversation at forums.fasttalklabs.com to discuss each and every episode. Become a member of Fast Talk Laboratories at fasttalklabs.com join and become part of our education and coaching community. For Chris Case and Trevor Connor, I'm Ryan Kohler. Thanks for listening.